Hey everyone, welcome to the Everyday Mental Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. On today's episode, I am joined by Ashley McCann. She is a therapist who specializes in working with folks with eating disorders. And during our conversation, we dive into trauma, EMDR, and so much more. It's a really great episode, and I hope you enjoy. So welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, thanks for having me, Amanda. I'm so glad to be here today. I I am a trauma and eating disorder specialist, and I'm also a yoga therapist. I live in Florida, and I work all over the United States. Um, Right now, one of the main things I'm doing is offering groups and private EMDR retreats, which I'm excited to talk more about today. And my whole focus is trying to help people change the way that they feel in relation to food, their bodies, and most importantly, in their relationships to themselves. Absolutely. I love that. And I can't wait to jump into the EMDR conversation, which we'll pick up a little bit later in this podcast. Uh, But something you and I initially connected on is kind of this understanding of micro and macro trauma. Um, And so typically as a culture, we tend to have a better understanding of larger, so macro trauma, um, but it's essential for us to also understand the micro trauma. So can you tell us a little bit about what is considered like smaller trauma and why we need to understand it? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because Trauma has continually been redefined over the course of my career, and I couldn't be happier to see something like that happen. We're now looking at trauma, at least I'm looking at trauma through the lens of all trauma is trauma. And one isn't, uh, we often hear people say capital T, small t trauma. And I look at trauma as relative. One person's trauma is the hardest thing that has happened to them. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to compare one trauma to another. What happens when we do that is we minimize and we invalidate experiences. So if we start to look at trauma and allow it to include the moments where we lacked the ability to cope, where we were overwhelmed mentally, physically, and emotionally. And these are the moments, the experiences that are profound, perhaps single incident, incidents, or they can be moments that repeated over time. These can also simply be experiences that changed the way that we saw ourselves, that changed our beliefs of ourselves in the world, that shifted the way we felt about ourselves. So for some, that might look like a shift from feeling safe and secure in the world to feeling unsafe and insecure from feeling that we have the choice and control that we need to feel good in this life to believing that we don't have control over our life, our happiness, our destiny. From feeling that we are whole as we are to believing that we are not enough, that we are unworthy. And so there's a lot that can come out of trauma as far as these beliefs are concerned. And there's so much I love about this work and that I look forward to sharing today because I think that we have so much of a um, kind of micro view of trauma that what happens is people don't recognize their own. And if we don't recognize our trauma, we don't have the power to change it. 
So I'm hoping that our conversation today empowers people to start to look at their own stories and experiences through a different lens, because that's what's going to help change happen. Absolutely. I, I so agree. And even like the conversation around like macro and micro, I think it's um, we just really need to validate trauma, like you were saying earlier. And when we get into this kind of like comparison game, it's it becomes really detrimental, right? Because um, typically when we've talked about like, you know, microaggressions and, and how that kind of relates into trauma and there's so many complexities and like, it could be like racial identity, mental health, um, LGBTQ folks, community. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's so many things that are intersecting that really impact us. And also having a history too of trauma in the family, right? Um, yeah. And so how all that like interplays. Uh, so it's really, I agree. I think it's really detrimental when we kind of get into this really siloed area of like, well, this is big trauma and that's little trauma because you just never know what experience is gonna, you know, land someone not on their feet per se. Um, you know, we've heard stories about, you know, someone who's mentally healthy and they go through life and then, you know, they have a death of a family member and their whole life changes. And then other people don't understand it because, they've gone through similar experiences and they were able to get up, go back to work and things like that. And so the problem there is we're doing this comparison game too, right? And right. any, anything about psychology, we know everybody, everybody and every mind is so different. And we all, that's the thing about trauma. I always explain to people is you just never know how someone's going to react. Right. Like we Absolutely. just, we don't know, you know, like they, they try and say, Oh, you know, obviously there's classifications with the DSM of trauma, but you know, really pigeonholing, I think can be really detrimental. And I also think too, it's led people to almost disavow their own, their trauma history. Absolutely. You know, it, this is all really interesting because I actually, look back on how I got into this line of work. And, you know, this journey for me really began back in high school. I was, you know, someone who had many friends. I was very social. And I also really cared about helping others. And for anyone who's ever done the Enneagram, that makes me a seven mm -hmm. and a bit of a two. <laughs> I wanted so much to understand the struggles of the people around me. And what was around me at that time in my life were friends with eating disorders who were self-harming, people who were dropping out of school, who had been previously these high-achieving friends of mine. And I was just hooked on this desire to get it, to want to understand. But the word trauma was not a part of my vocabulary. And one of the things that I remember so vividly looking back is that it wasn't just me that felt helpless. It wasn't us, the kids. I looked at these otherwise amazing adults in our lives who had no idea what was going on, why it was happening or what to do about it. And so it just became my mission to get it. I remember, you know, my best friend had an eating disorder and I wrote my first paper in AP psych in high school on eating disorders, just wanting to understand it. But what you get when you walk away from that is research and numbers and still mm -hmm. no idea what to do. 
right? And so, you know, I went on, of course, to really focus my intention on doing this work. And then being in my first internship out of, uh, well, within grad school, I had pitched myself at an eating disorder center because there were no internships available in that line of work. And I was in Boston, which is very interesting. There's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of treatment centers and there were no internships. So there was no learning. And so the thing that I recall about being there was that we were doing this amazing work of helping people build skills to cope. And we were supporting people through meals and change. And yet one-on-one, -on -one, these people were still suffering under all these past experiences, the way that they felt about themselves, the way they felt in their bodies. And so trauma was starting to show through as this common denominator. But back then the research wasn't looking at that. We weren't seeing that and we weren't healing it. And so, you know, it's, it's lovely to be here today to have these conversations because even for us to be dissecting the difference between traumas means we're learning so much more about trauma. And, you know, I hope that today this conversation helps people do just that, right? That it's all important if it has impacted you. And what's interesting is you gave that example of, you know, uh, like a profound loss, someone who is just entrenched in their grief and struggling to recover from it versus someone who's had a similar or same experience and didn't have that effect. It didn't affect them as a trauma, right? And what happens is if we look around, we're like, well, then that, that can't be trauma, right? Because mm -hmm. someone, that person's fine, but that's it. If it affects us, if it changes us, it's significant. And that's all that we need to know. And the same goes for eating disorders. I often get questioned, you know, what makes an eating disorder an eating disorder? And how do I know if I have an eating disorder? If you're struggling in your relationship with food and your body, if you're finding yourself preoccupied, if it's interfering with your life or your happiness, that's enough, right? Just like if your experiences have stuck with you and they have changed the way that you feel in this world, that's enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of conversation um, really with this stuff. I tend to speak more so from my personal experience. Never had quote unquote, a f like they, what they would classify as a full-blown eating disorder, but I had really orthorexic tendencies. Um, so for those out there who might not be familiar, um, it's just kind of this over obsession with quote unquote, clean eating and really eliminating a lot of different foods. Um, and honestly, because we live in such a culture that really reinforces diet culture to begin with, and um, this ideal of what a body looks like, and also to what an eating disorder body looks like, a lot of people right. don't know that they actually have a really unhealthy relationship with food. Absolutely, and the size, the shape of your body, isn't mm -hmm. a determining factor. It's really a, a state of mind, uh, a state of emotion. You know, when we're looking at an eating disorder, I, I, I don't look at numbers and wait to determine. And uh, I hope that that is another takeaway that your listeners have today, that if it is significant to you, then it's significant enough and it's worthy of your time and it's worthy of healing. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's been my biggest thing when, um, so 
as you and I were talking earlier, I uh, recently started teaching abnormal psychology. And when we get to the eating disorder, disordered eating section, I definitely take um, a emphasis on showing different people in media who have had eating disorders and how their bodies, they may be in a mid-sized body or a larger body, you know, so kind of like this narrative around um, really frail, thin, white bodies as being the only indicator, right? Typically when we're looking yeah. at anorexia, um, it's, it's not correct because there's also like the metabolic stuff that's going on as well. So that's always something that I try and stress because I think everyone, you know, tip when I was in my disordered eating stuff, I technically was in healthy BMI. Um, but my, I was a mess. Like I was obsessed with, um, what I was consuming, I eliminated so many different food groups. Um, you know, I had drastically lost a lot of weight, which got positive reinforcement because people were like, Oh, you look great. Like, what are you doing? Um, and then, you know, now I, I want to go back and be like, Oh yeah, I had eating disorder behavior. Um, you know, and right. you, you'd be like, you'd wonder what people would say in regards to that. And just, yeah. I don't know, my conversations throughout the years um, with folks in this industry and, you know, just, just regular people. Um, I have yet to meet someone who like hasn't known someone or themselves had some type of disordered relationship with food. I say like, if you've been on diets, especially like the yo-yoing stuff, like that, that's treat, that's teaching disordered eating behavior, you know, like you're not intuitively listening to what your body needs and wants. Um, but yeah, I I think a lot of people are afraid of that because we, we do live in a fat phobic society and, you know, the ultimate fear for a lot of people is, is gaining weight. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I gained weight through the process, but my, my body like balanced out, you know, um, to where it probably naturally should have been (laughs) in the first place. Yeah. Um, And it can take a long time for, for a body to be able to re-regulate and to be able to, you know, after optimize its functioning again, it can Mm -hmm. take up to a year sometimes. So, you know, you say so much that I think brings value to this conversation, these ideas of what reinforces it right? And the the beliefs that underlie it, the fear, for example, of gaining weight. And what often happens is that people stop short at, I can't gain weight and don't ask themselves why or what that means. Well, because I would then be fat and then they don't go further. Well, what would that mean about you? What does that mean for you? Why is that a threat? And that shows people so much when they start to dive into, why do I fear being fat, what does that mean to me? We can learn so much from it. So this really connects to this discussion that we're having of these different types of trauma. So if we look at, you know, these different forms of trauma, it might not look like, you know, the the traditional view of trauma, the car accident or going off to war Mm -hmm. and having these impactful experiences that shift and change us, but instead to start to include a, a broader view of what trauma can look like. What we start to see are these moments, you know, emotional overwhelm, inability to cope or understand in that moment. And so our minds make meaning. 
if this thing happened to me, what does it mean about me? This is especially true when we're young. As children, we have this concrete thinking. We don't yet have discernment. And so when things happen to us, we can adopt beliefs around them in very black and white terms. Mm -hmm. If this happened to me, I am good or bad. I was right or wrong. It's my fault. I'm not enough. Mm -hmm. This is especially true if we received any direct messages. So if people name called, if there was emotional abuse, um, it's interesting. Uh, the research actually shows that people are just as likely to develop an eating disorder as a result of sexual abuse as they are of emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. So again, there's this research showing us that the, the type of experience, it doesn't matter if it's more or less profound in our judgment of it, it's significant it can be significant, right? So if we're looking at these experiences in early childhood, adolescence, as teenagers, even as adults that have this overwhelming effect on us, in those moments, our mind, as it is a, a meaning-making device, will try to make sense of what has happened to us. And if we begin to adopt a belief around an experience that means something about me, Let's say I'm not enough because for a lot of people who are walking around right now, fearing being fat, being seen as fat, as was your example, underneath that is this fear that if they were, they wouldn't be enough and what not being enough would mean for them in the world, in their life. So if we're making this meaning and we're applying it to these, uh, to ourselves as a result of these experiences, what now happens is that's in the neural network of our mind. And now we're more likely to find evidence of it. So, you know, we have this thing called the default network mode of our brain. It's these different parts of our brain that light up and they're seeing a connection between the default neural network and our autobiographical, autobiographical memory. So how I tell myself the story of who I am. Mm -hmm. We are also learning that the default network mode in our brain has a protective function or intention. So let's look at this. We've got something traumatic that happens. This could be um, the emotional abuse of, you know, name calling, growing up repeatedly, uh, being bullied in school. Um, this is the type of experience perhaps that um, if we're looking at these different types of trauma and trying to expand our lens, um, something really painful and traumatic happening in relationships, right? So maybe feeling rejected, not included, being a part of the group and then being ousted. If we walk away having made the meaning and from these experiences that I am not enough, it is now in the neural network of our brain. And how does that relate to protection? Well, if I believe I'm not enough, now my, my amygdala, which is there as this heat seeking device trying to find the threats and problems is going to light up in any moment that I don't feel enough. And we start to develop patterns of behavior to protect ourselves. So some might try to overcompensate when they feel not enough. They might try to people please, overdo, prove themselves. Another person might retreat, shut down, shy away, and no longer put themselves out there because they don't believe that they ever will be enough. Mm 
And so how does this relate to eating disorders? Well, let's put eating disorders in the context. If I don't think I'm enough, I am now out there in the world trying to figure out what would make me enough. And that reinforcement that you were talking about in your story of, you know, if I was losing weight, I was getting positively reinforced as if that was a good thing. Now I've done well and people are seeing me as enough. As I lose weight, I'm getting positive reinforcement. So now losing weight becomes a part of trying to cope with this feeling, this belief underneath everything that I'm not enough. I have worked with uh, a lot of females in this particular pattern um, where there's this strong correlation between perfectionism and their eating disorder patterns. And more than once I've seen a very similar storyline play out. Um, their parents worked very hard to get where they were in life. And now they want their child to succeed and have security. But the child adopts this belief that they can't fail. Mm-hmm. And when they don't do something perfectly, they immediately feel that they have failed. It is a very black and white way of moving through the world. If I am not best, I am worst. If I have not gotten in an A, I might as well have failed. It can't be a B. And this might go into their sport where they have to be best or perfect. And so for this storyline, if we look at, you know, what are the beliefs that are in that autobiographical autobiographical story of who this person is? I'm a failure. On the outside, this person looks like nothing but the achiever. To anyone else, they'd be seen as a success. And yet when they look inward, when they look at themselves, they see nothing but failure. The reason that I give this as an example, you know, this is what happens for us that keeps us from healing, that we don't see ourselves the way others see us. And we might minimize our struggle because we believe we should be in it. If we believe we're not enough, if we believe we're a failure, It's very hard to step back and go, I'm not a failure. I am enough and start to move away from it because we've built our world around coping with it as if it is a fact. So, you know, those girls in that perfectionistic pattern tend to be very perfectionistic in their eating, much like the orthorexia that you are describing, Uh, very rigid, very limited. There is a right and there is a wrong. There are good foods. There are bad foods. If I eat the good foods, I am good. If I eat the bad foods, I am bad. I have failed yet again. And that's binary thinking, right? We know it's just not healthy. And um, yeah, actually something I, I recently talked to my students about was changing the language around good and bad food to, um, more nutritiously dense, or we've also talked about, uh, like, cake and all that stuff as being like fun food. And so kind of like a way of like demoralizing, right. Um, that you're good or you're bad or this and that. And, um, cause it can be super detrimental because, you know, if, especially for folks in recovery, if they are starting to eat quote unquote bad food that they had in the past, um, they're going to have those like self negative thoughts and beliefs right around it until they get to that point in their recovery where they're, you know, able to move away from the moralizing of food. Yes. yes. That moral reasoning that we place on ourselves and everything that we do and then everything that we eat. And 
you know, whether or not we exercise and whether or not we're living up to these cultural standards that, you know, perpetuate all of these patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So often people ask, you know, is it a result of social media? Well, social media reinforces it for certain. It can increase the likelihood of someone developing the beliefs that we're talking about here and therefore applying them as behaviors when they have experienced a trauma that's resulted in a shift in the way they believe um, and what they believe of themselves in this world, mm -hmm. right? So we begin after traumas like these, we begin to lose sight of who we really are, that we wow. are good, we are whole, that we are enough just as we are. And so the work that I do with people is to not only work to manage and cope with the struggles of the eating disorder and the effects that it has mentally, physically, and emotionally, but to begin to look at what might possibly be fueling it, what lies beneath the surface, those patterns in thinking, the stories of who we are, the stories of who we need to be. Where did we come up with those stories? Where did we come up with these beliefs? Where did they start? And so often it can be traced back to a moment in time mm -hmm. where everything shifted. And um, in my experience, nearly all of the men and women that I've worked with have easily identifiable trauma. Research shows that uh, 70 to 75% of women in treatment report experiences of trauma. Uh, this relies though on people being able to identify the trauma. And so I would say that those numbers are skewed because we don't often see those moments that we believe are meaningless, that they aren't profound enough as trauma. And so by expanding this lens, we can now capture and therefore help more people. Yeah, I think just to your point, and one major takeaway, I think from this episode that I really want listeners to take away is trauma just is this, it's almost like the field of psychology has tried to define it and really tried hard to kind of have these different views of it, but we just, we still don't know so much. Right. And we know that trauma actually is stored in the body and it impacts brain and synapses and, and wiring and so forth. And, you know, an experience for one person may be different from another. And I think because in studies, you know, we do do comparison, right? Like when we do right. look at research and it's, it almost that in itself is really detrimental because we might be really overlooking a lot of folks that have trauma because they may not be presenting certain symptomology or their, their trauma that they went through might not be classified in the way that, you know, the clinician sitting in front of them might define it, you know? Absolutely. You know, when it comes to the trauma that we're talking about today, a block to healing can be that we haven't had our experiences seen or validated, right? That we haven't been able to acknowledge the impact that it's had. And if our experience isn't shared with someone else, they aren't able to validate it and help us understand it. So, so much of the issue here is that we're keeping it all in mm -hmm. and we don't believe that it is enough or it's meaningful enough or that it should have mattered enough that it deserves any attention. And so we just carry it through life, like you said, in the cells of our body, but we're still operating from it because of that. You know, when we look at ourselves, especially our past selves, we do so with a great deal of judgment. 
It's mm -hmm. very easy for us to look back on those moments, especially these moments of impact and go, it was my fault. It's because I'm not enough. I am less than, and to have shame. Shame is similarly the common denominator between every person I've worked with and in the experiences I relate to myself. Where there is shame, we are bound to the experience as if it identifies us. And that's another way to define trauma. That changes us and makes us believe we are that. This is the difference between you know, the rape victim who goes on to have a fully functional life and the one who succumbs to the pain of that rape and never seems herself again. And this is because one person looks at this and says, that was an awful thing that happened to me. And the other person says, this awful thing is me. I am that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I find trauma to be really fascinating. Um, and even I recently finished, um, it didn't start with you. And um, right. that looks into like inherited trauma um, mm -hmm. and the history of that. And I would, <laughs> I'm going to argue that I think everyone has some type of trauma history. Um, and I think if we shift more to that lens, we become more open-minded to the different, the different experiences of trauma that people have. Right. Um, and then also too, like you were talking about, um, this happened to me and the different mindset that we can have and, you know, the healing and so forth. Um, but trauma really, the, this is the, a good thing from research. It needs to be healed. Right. Um, and when it isn't healed, we just continue perpetuating it, you know, the whole narrative around hurt people, hurt people. Um, and unfortunately, until people do get that help, you know, they might have manifestations in terms of having severe anxiety or depression or, you know, perpetuating trauma onto other people um, when they don't heal it themselves. So, but again, that also kind of gets into conversations around, you know, accessibility and also, um, you know, folks like not even knowing like where to go and even Absolutely. too, not even recognizing that sometimes they are carrying trauma that they might not be conscious of. I think that this, you know, speaks to the importance of not only increasing awareness, but accessibility. And in, it's absolutely right and true that there are so many people out there suffering and struggling and they don't have the resources. And that's mm -hmm. something I really hope that we see continue to change. You know, there's um, certainly an increased accessibility with all the app-based services. Um, yep. And I, I'd like to see that go even further beyond to include trauma work in different forms. And I hope that we continue to expand in that way. Um, one of the things that the pandemic brought for me was an awareness that the form of healing that I had been providing could be done from a distance. And it was something that I hadn't done and that I hesitated for a great deal of time to do once everything shut down. Um, but when I saw that not trying could be similarly a disservice to the people I was working with, um, started to experiment and see if it was safe and effective. And so now um, I'm an EMDR provider. I'm also trained in hypnotherapy. And what I've been able to do is work with people over Zoom 
over the internet. And, and, you know, now we're finally returning to being back in person, but I'm very glad to know that at least that level of accessibility is there as a possibility for people who can't get out of their homes and who still need to do this work. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm so glad you segued into it because that was going to be my next question. We kind of alluded to it earlier in the podcast episode, but um, I would love for you to talk about what EMDR is and um, the role it plays in um, healing and treating trauma. Yeah. EMDR is well, it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a bit of a mouthful. So we didn't <laughs> just abbreviate EMDR. Um, it is quite similar to hypnotherapy in that it is a process that, you know, a therapist supports a client in going into a very calm and grounded and relaxed state. It is not a trance. And while people are in this process, they're fully conscious and we are interacting. So I just say that because there is a lot of fear, I think, attached to um, knowing what will happen in a process like this. I think there is a lot of fear of feeling that there may not be control. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to reinforce for everyone that it's absolutely there. Choice and control are the first and foremost for anyone who's going through this work and doing this healing process. So the intention of EMDR is to heal trauma in all forms. What it does for us is what we so often struggle to do on our own, which is to see ourselves through new eyes and see our experiences with a new lens. Um, This is one that allows us to have compassion and to find new understanding that will allow us to release the beliefs that we attach to ourselves and that we've carried forward as a result of our experiences. So What this does is it allows us to go back to, you know, maybe that moment in time where a shift happened, a profound experience changed something for us, where it created that belief that something was our fault or that we had no control or that we were not safe or that we're no longer enough. And it allows us to step back from it, to see it through the eyes of the adult that we are today, looking back at ourselves when we were younger looking at what was happening in that situation that might've had nothing to do with us, looking at perhaps even the fact that while it was true in that moment, we were not safe and we did not have the choice and control that we would have liked to have had, that it isn't a black and white fact that we never can nor will again, which is often what happens to people in overwhelming moments. It creates this um, belief that things will never be what they were again. And so we walk through life with a hypervigilance of fear and anxiety um, or a hopelessness and doubt of ever feeling okay again. And so as we're looking back, we start to see and gather new information and new understanding and to, you know, if, if all is going well, to be able to relinquish those judgments and to heal that shame and to begin to shift the way that we see ourselves again, to recalibrate and get back to ourselves. Yeah. I love that. And I just, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, like hesitation around EMDR because like you said earlier, sometimes people feel like you're, you have like a loss of consciousness or something. And, um, but I love the way that you go into explaining it. It's, you know, very eloquent. And I know personally I've had, um, 
people I've known in the past who have gone through EMDR and they've had trauma histories and um, had like a handful of sessions. I'm not sure what the the um, protocol is. I'm sure it's on a base, uh, like person to person basis, but um, the folks I've known who've gone through it, they have had really great experiences and they feel like it was really helpful in facilitating further healing uh, from their trauma. I, I love hearing any stories like these, you know, this has helped so many people that I know, people who are close to me personally in my life, as well as the clients that I've worked with. And um, I've, you know, been through the process myself and really taken a great deal away from it. It's a lot like a meditation. And I really value just the way that it's structured and allows us to find change that for me and for, you know, most would say that they feel safe. You know, we, we do maintain our choice to stop, go, to begin or to not begin, to focus on what is truly important to us and valuable to us. It's not up to the therapist in that way. And I think that that kind of power is really helpful in empowering the client in the healing process, which is something that I think we all need after experiences like these. Absolutely. It's so important. And I know earlier you and I were talking before we started recording that you were doing some of this work uh, remotely. So maybe if anyone's interested out there and potentially working with you, um, can you tell them a little bit about how you work with folks? Absolutely. So I work with individuals. And right now I'm getting ready to work with my first group. So we'll be going through a course together, but with live sessions. And so what you'll get in this process is the self-exploration, building self-awareness, and then building skills to use along the way. You'll get the resourcing aspect of EMDR that you can use on your own, which is a really great resource in and of itself that helps to begin to build, if you can imagine, new neural pathways for the positive while you're still working through the the pieces that you need to that puzzle of figuring out your the, the healing work you might do. So there's a lot of really great resources that come out of EMDR that aren't all about going back into the trauma, but that can help us in the present. And so I'm very excited to be launching that. And after this first group goes through, there will be another. So anyone who's interested, whether or not you listen to this podcast in real time or in six months, reach out and you can get involved. I'm also running private EMDR retreats. So four day retreats, of deep dives into EMDR for healing. And I'm happy to share information about that with anyone who is interested. You can go to my website. It's www.ashleymccann.com. For those who are looking for coping and some resources that are free and accessible anytime, you can go to my website, to the free resources section, and in the show notes, perhaps we could uh, post the link directly to those resources. And anyone who's interested in just learning more about the work that I've done, you can go to my YouTube page. Absolutely. Yes. And we will definitely post all your links in the show notes and tag you on Instagram and all the good social media stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much, Ashley. This was such a great conversation. One that's really important. And 
I hope one big takeaway folks listening out there, you know, take from trauma is that it really is this expansive um, thing that we really, we still are learning a lot about um, and to really not compare our experiences to others uh, because we know that that can get really detrimental in the healing process. Right. Um, And some people can have that negative self um, thought process, which in turn, you know, shame and and feeling and so forth. So um, yeah, I hope that this conversation on trauma opens up people's thoughts around what trauma is, what it looks like, um, and how everyone really is impacted on a different level. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you bringing this to the forefront. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. It's so nice getting to talk to you. You too, Ashley. Thank you.